Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. mindset does is allows you to overlay moments in time, these, these hot states that you're under, and you're probably under them multiple times during a day, where in these moments, these impact those attitudes, those beliefs, those preferences that a segmentation study or a persona, we have agency life, we have personas that we try to map to, it allows you to understand that persona and all their attitudes and their beliefs, but then how those beliefs, how those attitudes, how those wants, needs, desires are influenced in the moment when you have this high emotional arousal. So it takes into consideration time and what's happening in this environment. If you can message to the person and the mind state, you have much more effective marketing. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't listened yet to my recent conversations with Paul Chapman of the Australian Turntable Company and with the comeback coach, Tim Storey, then do go check them out. Only after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Will Leach. He's one of the world's leading experts on subconscious mind states, and he's the best-selling author of Marketing to Mind States, a practical guide to applying behavioral design to research and marketing and a behavioral design instructor at SMU's Cox School of Business and the Texas A&M Human Behavior Lab. Will consults with today's most innovative brands and advertising agencies to increase the effectiveness of their marketing through behavioural science. Will is also the founder and CEO of TriggerPoint, a behavioural science-based research firm, and the MindState Group, which helps marketing professionals apply behavioural psychology through subconscious mind states to design marketing that gets customers to listen, to care, and to act. In our discussion today, Will talked to me about why an understanding of your ideal customer's emotions and behaviours is critical for good marketing. We talked about how time and context play a role in buying decisions, and we talked about how to find your one thing that makes you stand out. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Will Leach. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from Dallas in Fort Worth, Texas, the USA, of course, Will Leach. Will is the best-selling author of Marketing to Mind States, 
He's an expert in applying behavioral psychology to marketing. Welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast, Will. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. Jurgen, thank you for having me. I cannot wait to get into all things behavioral marketing. Great, and um, me too. Now, Steve Brown, who was our guest on episode 363 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested that we have a conversation with you and introduced us. So, big hello to Steve. Hello, Steve. I adore Steve. He's done some great things for me and my in my uh, my business. So, I'm glad he was the one. I want to champion that guy whenever I can. He's a good one. Great. Yeah, he is. We had a lot of fun talking, and we're still in touch regularly. Now, I'm really keen to sort of dig into this whole idea of behavioral science and how it applies to marketing and the idea of mindset marketing, which you describe as an innovative approach to developing behaviorally persuasive creative. And I'm guessing that creative means material or assets or whatever you need in your marketing marketing world. Now, before we get on to all of that and start to talk about some of the things you you uh, describe in the book, what drives you and how does that shape what you do today? Yeah, you know, um, different times in my life, I've been driven by different things. Um, in my latest field, which I would say last 10 years, at least from a business perspective, it was, and I can tell you the exact moment in time when I learned about behavioral sciences. So I don't come from this traditional psychology background, sociology background. I was an economist. And I had never taken a psychology course or anything else, but I was introduced to this idea through a laboratory that I ran over at PepsiCo um, here in Dallas, Texas, but then also a conference where within 15 minutes, my world changed, literally changed because everything I thought I understood about human behavior just in a moment changed after I heard um, a speech by BJ Fogg. Anyways, that created for me about a decade of Re going back to everything I believed in marketing, which was people try to optimize optimize utility, like we learn in economics, right? Like, give me a price, give me a supply, I'll find utility and I'll go buy something. And understanding the human brain and the way the mind works, maybe the, the better way to think about the mind and how we make decisions based upon emotions and our contextual variables like our environment, how we're feeling, are we hungry or not? Those things were so foreign to me that I could not wrap my head around how could I have missed all of this. So for the last decade, all I do, I I talked about it yesterday, actually, on a conversation. I said, all I do is read about behavioral sciences. I don't watch football anymore. I do this. I don't play golf. I do this. I don't hunt. And I'm in Texas and I don't hunt. I do this. Um, And so what really drives me now is is this idea of behavioral science. And then in 2020, with the pandemic, and just here in, in my local area, so many small businesses going out of business. And we have this incredible pizza shop, not down too far down the road. And this guy makes a hell of a pizza. And he, he went out of business. And it kills me because he was not, he did nothing wrong. You're gonna, like, he did nothing wrong. He made a perfect pizza. He had a great environment. He had a great product. But yet he did not understand marketing in the way that you can persuade people to co-think about your pizza place versus going to a Starbucks, whatever, that kills me. And behavioral science allows anybody now to do marketing that is optimized for their customers and just give them those incremental sales that would keep people in business. So right now, I've converted a large part of my company to small, medium business focus. My, my other company um, has always been focused on really big companies like PepsiCo, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, really big companies. I think now my passion is on small businesses, you know, small, medium businesses, 
you know, just trying to navigate this new world of complexity. And, and I think if that that's what keeps me up at night now is trying to figure out a way to get this stuff into the hands of as many small businesses as possible, because I believe that our future, at least in the United States, you know, a, a middle class will come from entrepreneurs. It, it won't be a manufacturing middle class. I think it'll be an entrepreneurial middle class. And if I can get more entrepreneurs to actually be successful, it'll better society, better everything we need to do as a country. So that's what keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. That's exciting stuff. Um, that example of of the pizza shop that went out of business, and you know the whole environment we find ourselves in now, as we as we record this, which is the kind of we're we're starting to roll out vaccines across the world, but we're still in in this pandemic. We're still suffering lockdowns in various places, and of course the economy is suffering. The the idea. I mean, one of the things that I admire with what some businesses have done is going back and asking yourself the question, what is it I really provide people? And in the case of that pizza shop, you know, if they're saying, well, I I provide people with pizza because they like pizza, so my customers like pizza. Um, Whereas if he he had looked at it at a higher level and said, well, it's the, the... the experience or the feeling they get when they eat the pizza and then how can I provide that experience in this new environment where they're not allowed to come into the shop or the restaurant? Um, how do you see that kind of thinking playing out and how, do, how does the marketing to mind state mentality, um, how do you apply that as a business owner? Yeah, it is the number one thing I think that every business, exactly what you just said, should do. So in chapter four, I believe, of the book, we talk about goal theory and aspirational goals or higher order goals. And that's this idea that when people think about pizza, you ask them, hey, what are you looking for a pizza? They'll say things like, I want a good price. I want it to, you know, um, I want to have a lot of variety in the menu. I want to have great cheese. They'll say these functional goals. And if you build your business around people's functional goals, you may have a nice business, but you have a business that could easily go out of business. Why? Because everybody provides good value, great tasting pizza. Yeah, you may have a different tomato sauce. That may differentiate you. In that book, I talk so much about aspirational goals. and just comes from you know goal theory and this idea that we all have aspirations in life. And your pizza customers and our customers and your customers, we all, all of our customers have aspirations in life. And in fact, we find that the majority of behaviors outside of a reflex action goes at least in part towards some your aspiration. And if you don't understand the aspirations of your customers, then you will always innovate to the least common denominator, which would be a feature. I have great tasting pizza. I have good value. I have variety menu. So what I talk about in that book is you have to ladder. And that's what you just basically did. You ladder people. So why is it important for you to have a variety of men- on your menu? And why is it important for you to have great value? Well, then if you can ladder your customers and you say, if you ask them, why is that important? They may say, well, it's so that we can all agree that when we get to the table, we can all as a family agree with something to eat. Then you do it again. Why is that important to you? And if you can get that customer to say that one more time, I usually do it twice. Then they may say something like, well, it's so in, in this crazy complex world, it allows my family for an hour to reconnect and brother, if you are if you're innovating your business around connection, I've just now expanded my sphere of influence or my sphere of, of competition away from just pizza places. I can now compete against all the Starbucks. I can compete against other uh, places where people connect. And that's what you really want to do. You want to associate your company or your brand or your pizza place with that higher order goal. 
that aspiration. And when you do that, when that person feels a need, a meaning to connect, a, a need to connect, and that could be in the morning. I may need to connect with my family in the morning. I feel like I'm, I'm just lost. The pizza place comes up to mind. So I'm not thinking about you when I need pizza. I'm thinking about when you need a moment of connection. That's the most important thing I think you can do is just being associated with that higher order goal. And that's the first thing I do in the book is try to get you to that higher order goal or aspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that really resonated with me, that section, because I, um, and you may have heard this story on some other podcast episodes, but I lived through the birth of the digital photography revolution in my early days, in my early professional career, because I landed a job at ACFA in the research department there. And, and as a young man who's been a hobby photographer all my life, I thought, wow, this is this is the dream job for me. This is a dream career. But of course, very quickly, I saw the writing on the wall and I saw the whole um, response and strategies that were missing there. And they, they didn't, you know, they said, we just make better film. I remember, I remember that comment. That was the strategy. We'll just make better film. And it wasn't asking the question, what is the experience we're actually providing our customers? Yeah, good for you for recognizing that. So how many people haven't? We almost moved to Rochester, New York, because my wife got a research, uh, or she got a job in research to go work at Kodak. And we were close, but when we saw the, the, the temperature in Rochester, New York, we decided against it. But they were saying the same things back then. They were saying the same things. Mm -hmm. We're going to make, you know, uh, you know, better, better cameras that you know, print faster. And, and, and we weren't even aware of how the industry was changing. And so good for you for being aware and seeing that because it's, it's hard to do. It's because you get so into your world. That's hard for you to figure out that the world's changing on you, you know? Hmm. All right. Well, um, you know, there, there's kind of a fundamental question here around the whole philosophy of, um, marketing to mind states and and what you describe in the book so let's start off with what what do you what do you define as a mind state yeah so a mind state uh is a temporary moment of high emotional arousal um uh, and what i like to think about a mind state is it's kind of when you're in a hot state so i equate it to sometimes if you're in las vegas and you're you're in you're, you're gambling or maybe you're at a wedding you're in an incredibly great movie and you lose time and when you lose time you're so engaged with a moment those in those moments you're much more susceptible to influence because you're using system one non-conscious emotional processing of information and so when you're in these mind states and if you can message to a mind state you message to the subconscious emotions and why i think that's really important and critical uh, nowadays is that i i tend to think that forever we've been taught and I was in this world. I worked at PepsiCo for a decade. I, I, I worked in marketing research in a couple of different companies that our job was to message or market to people, right? If I go do a segmentation and I'll go figure out you are segment four, uh, you're a healthy eater. So let me go talk to you as a healthy eater. Well, what Mind States does is says, you're not just a healthy eater. You're gonna, you are also maybe a father or you're, uh, you have a spiritual life or you have a family or you have a business owner. You have all these different dimensions of your life. And what we tend to do is we put everybody into this one little concept of a segment, and then we message that segment, and we hope that maybe we get a small fraction of those people that we message to, to act on our, our marketing. What a mind state does is allows you to overlay moments in time, these, these hot states that you're under, and you're probably under them multiple times during a day, where in these moments, these impact those attitudes, those beliefs, 
those preferences, that a segmentation study or persona, we have agency life, we have personas that we try to map to. It allows you to understand that persona and all their attitudes and their beliefs, but then how those beliefs, how those attitudes, how those wants, needs, desires are influenced in the moment when you have this high emotional arousal. So it takes into consideration time and what's happening in this environment. If you can message to the person and the mind state, you have much more effective marketing. Hmm. Hmm, that's fascinating. We we do a lot of work around um, uh, taking the concept of the customer persona that to that higher level and understanding yeah what values do they have, what drives them, what are their beliefs, um, what are their desires, what are they aiming to achieve, and then you know asking those questions in terms of you know do they want to buy pizza or, or the, yeah. are they looking for that connection experience um, by buying and pizza is the vehicle that delivers that and what's their before state and after state. One of the things that I think what you describe in the book is a little bit different is, is then tying that in with specific moments and identifying those trigger points or trigger moments. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So these trigger point moments, and, and I, I found this out doing marketing research at PepsiCo. And we had a laboratory. And in this laboratory, it was here in Dallas, Texas. It was about the size of a small grocery store where I had neuroscientists on staff that were running through, um, you know, copy testing and taste tests and, um, and, and, and concept tests and advertising testing. And so I was being exposed to the importance of time through the neuroscience side. But then I also had a laboratory, which was about the size of a, um, I guess, uh, for, for listeners out there, maybe the size of a drugstore or a small grocery store. So sizable and videotapes. And uh, we had heat mapping. I mean, it was it was over the top. You're gonna, it was over the top. And that's how Pepsi does things. And I ran an experiment where um, where time was basically the only element that changed. So I had to think of it as a pre-post test, right? So on day one, I had a bunch of people come in. I won't go into the specifics of the test, but a bunch of people come in and shop my environment. And then overnight, I was going to change the environment and then bring a whole bunch of other people in and then have them shop and see what happened to, to, the, to uh, buying, buying patterns. And basically what happened was the change that was supposed to happen overnight didn't happen. We didn't receive a shipment of new marketing. So it was the exact same environment. Now, as an economist, I would have, suge- I would have thought, well, I didn't change any of the real variables. Now, technically, we brought in let – me, let me back up. On day two, we had people, we didn't change the environment. We had a new set of people come through, um, qualified to be very similar as the people on day one, and totally drastic behaviors change, totally drastic differences in behaviors. As an economist, that's not supposed to happen. I controlled all my variables, except for maybe some of the people. And that that sounds weird, but I mean, they were technically about the same segments, the same types of segments and, and personas that came in on day one as day two. And what, what, what that kind of occurred to me was that um, what we found out, why, I was asked why that why that happened, and I didn't have a solution. I didn't know. As an economist, I had no idea. So I started reading about behavioral sciences, and we found out that on day two, when shoppers came in to check in, check into the store, we had a clerk who um, was filling in. And the way that she set up the the, the scenario, and so she talked about basically, hey, here's what you're going to do. She gave more information and told people that they had to take the test quickly because we're going to have a lot of people coming in the day. So she, she made time a new element saying they have to hurry up and shop the store as quickly as possible. 
And by doing that, I started thinking about what, what impact would that have had if I told these people on day one, shop for as long as you want. And on day two, I said, you need to shop the, as fast as you can because we have a lot of people coming in and we can't hmm. install. That was my first introduction of time, thinking about how, how important time is. And then, of course, as you get into neuroscience things, you know that you know as you're testing you know, advertising neurologically, time is really critical. I mean, we can start getting neurological uh, information at the one millimeter, well, not maybe not the millimeter or the millisecond, but we can get stuff certainly within half a second. And all of a sudden, seeing how you know advertising works at half a second increments, how it's working to whether it's hitting cognitive load or whatever, starts it makes you start realizing that moments in time matter a lot. So I wanted to start studying these moments in time. That's what got me into motivational psychology, regulatory fit theory, et cetera. And these, these, these moments of time are trigger points, uh, as you had said, these moments in time where you are susceptible to influence under the umbrella of a mind state. So trigger points are moments in time that you're just much more open to suggestion, if, if you will, because you're using that emotional processing that we talked about a couple of minutes ago. Hmm. Can, can you give us an example of how that might play out? How the, I mean, you, you talked about the time factor, but how you know, specific trigger points, how, how you might recognize that as a marketer, what are the trigger points where people are going to be making a decision and how can you give them all the information they need at that time to make the decision? And perhaps also from the other side of it, how, how do we recognize, hey, I'm at this trigger point stage now, where do I, I need to be careful? That. <laughs> That's a great question. So the first one I would tell you is the classic uh, life stages. So I'm sure you're out there and people out there um, know that there are moments in time where your beliefs, your values change. And the classic one I talk about in my book is the birth of my child. So, mm. um, or a wedding, like when you're marrying, when you're gonna get married to somebody, well then um, we know as marketers, that if we can predict when somebody's going to get married, or if we can predict when they're going to move their move move to another part of the country or move their house, or if we can predict when they're going to have a baby, what happens in these life stage events, these these big critical moments, that we're much more open to new suggestions, right? Because all of a sudden, well, now I'm 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 bringing in another life into my world, right? So I need to make sure that we're protecting the baby, or I bring on a wife. So we need to make sure that you know we now can coexist together. So there are moments when you get a new job is another one of these things where, you know, if, if you have a new job, you know that you have to change in some way. So moments of change are the classic ones that most marketers know about, right? So I work with financial planners and they know that, um, you know, when you get a new uh, job, it's a really important to, you know, kind of be looking at LinkedIn so that when you see one of your clients has changed their jobs, you should call them up and see if they can get some of that bonus into their IRA or whatever, right? So we all know these moments of time. And those are the easy ones. And those are starting to become, they're effective, but they're becoming uh, too effective, meaning that too many people are trying to uh, uh, predict when you're going to move. And so everyone's trying to hit these big life changes uh, that you have, but they're, they're very important. Um, I'm more interested in moments that, happen many more times a day. And I can find those things, at least through the research that I do, um, would be, let's say for instance, if you were shopping, you're going down a, uh, a, a grocery store aisle and all of a sudden a display catches your attention and you stop. So in that moment, I know that when you stop, that you're more likely to be in a state of higher emotional arousal. You didn't, you didn't kind of walk by it, you saw that. 
Um, and so those are the points I love or the points on a website where I can tell if you're staring at something on my website longer than maybe what you should have, then I know that there's something there, maybe bad or good, but either way, I know I have an emotional arousal. So those are those moments that I want to study and understand what is it about that moment in time where you paused and hopefully you paused for a good reason. Now, thinking to your question about, well, how can we as individuals realize when we're under a state of emotional arousal and we're much more susceptible to influence ourselves. Um, and it happens all the time. And so I, I saw a speech by Daniel Kahneman years ago, and he said that even Daniel Kahneman, for those of you who don't know, you know, kind of think of as the father of behavioral economics, a big deal in psychology. I, I know that I've heard him talked about on your podcast before. And Daniel Kahneman at this conference said, even he doesn't recognize when he's in the system one emotional state and he studies it, but he has these little, uh, I guess, I don't want to say triggers, but he may have even used the word, but here's one of the things he said. He said, numbers are, are important for people to recognize when, when people are interacting with numbers, that it's likely that you're in one of these emotional states that where you can actually make an emotional decision, which sounds kind of counter. Uh, contradictory to what you would expect. Because I always yeah. assume if I'm looking at numbers, I mean, I'm very like, I'm a considered state. He actually said the opposite. He said, most people make, they look at numbers and rather than going through the calculation, whether it's looking at price comparisons or whatever, he says, most people use that system one, that emotional part of their brain to make a very quick decision. Because actually calculating numbers is hard for many people. So here's what he does. He says, when he sees numbers, this is like a Nobel prize winning, you know, um, Psychologist, he says when he sees numbers, he's conditioned himself to pause, go stop. And then he puts it, he takes himself out of that emotional state and goes into this rational. So he's, he says that he has to do kind of a, um, kind of like a trigger that it's that, that he knows he needs to pause. So that, that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it, where if you could figure out ways when. Um, whether it's a number or um, some other trigger that tells you to pause and take a moment, if you can figure that out, then you're going to be much less likely to be persuaded in any bad way, I guess is the best way, to, the, the, the way to guard yourself from it. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and it, it is counterintuitive. But then, you know, there's a there's a school of thought, and it may well come back to Kahneman that says, you know, we make we decide on our emotions and then we go into some sort of rational decision-making process whose sole purpose is to justify the emotional decision that we've already made, which yeah. usually is pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. So I'll follow Kahneman's advice. Um, but the truth, of, the truth of the matter is you probably don't know how often and how many times throughout the day that you're in these states you probably notice the ramifications, whether it's on your credit card or something you purchased or, you know, something that's great, but it's usually after the fact. And then, like you said, we probably post-rationalize a lot of those decisions say, well, that was great for me, or it worked to help the kid or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So talk to me a little bit about the, the you talk about the drivers of, um, of a purchase decision and you talk about trigger, what, what triggers the behavior to, for somebody to decide to purchase something. So talk to me a little bit more about the, the true drivers of that purchase decision, because I think that's kind of really relevant in what we're, where we're going with. Yeah, so the reason why I even got here was um, because I was at PepsiCo and I was being asked to bring behavioral sciences into 
the uh, into the organization. I, I was passionate. I fell in love with this science. I just kept reading as much as I could. And basically, I found four different social sciences that I believe helped me understand and then you know, when used properly can actually influence behaviors outside of marketing, by the way, these are just, you know, social sciences. For mm -hmm. me, the first one is goal theory. And we actually talked about this and that we have these goals and we have functional goals, you know, that we have, I want value. I want something to taste great. Those things that you could rattle off very quickly, but then you have these aspirational goals and goal theory would suggest that you're much more likely to go after your aspirational goals to get yourself to a better state. So understanding, I think of that honestly as the target of a behavior, like whether you know it or not, Every time you decide to make a, a, a decision, it is towards a goal, one way or another, mm -hmm. outside of a reflex, I think. It, it's, it's towards a goal. The second social science I started studying was motivational psychology. And that is the idea of emotional, I think of it as an engine almost. It's the emotional fuel that helps you go after your goal. So you and I can have goals all day long. Like I have goals every morning. I wake up with lots of goals and I don't reach those goals all the time. You do it on January 1st, right? Why? It's not because your goals were bad. It's because you may have lacked sufficient motivational fuel to continue your focus on the goals. Then the third uh, social science I started studying was regulatory fit theory. That's how Tori Higgins work out of uh, Columbia. And he basically just looks at the world and says, hey, listen, if you want to kind of lower resistance to decision making, all you have to do is understand the way people approach it. And I'm going to simplify his brilliant work um, and, 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 and the best way I can is basically saying we either seek to maximize gains or we seek to minimize losses. And if mm. you can frame up your features, your brand in a way that tells people, hey, if you naturally seek to maximize gains, you should use my company because here are the good things that will happen to you if you use my company. Or you get other people who, are, who think that the best way to reach their goals is to minimize risk and loss. Then you say, hey, use my company. I'm going to help you avoid mistakes. So that is the third part of the model. And that's really just a lower resistance to marketing, usually in copy. And then the last part are uh, heuristics, uh, in which you would know from behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman's work, which says that we have these shortcuts to decision making. Um, and there, there's these intuitive shortcuts that you've learned over the course of your existence that helps decisions go faster and easier. And the classic one I use here in the States is scarcity effect. And scarcity effect is a cognitive heuristic or a bias that many people have that, um, that say that you should value things that you believe are scarce in nature over other things. It doesn't have any rational reason oftentimes, mm. but if something is scarce in nature, limited quantities or, you know, or while supplies last, your brain assigns economic value or emotional value to that. Therefore, it seems more desirable. So the idea is that if I can understand those four things, what are your goals? What are you motivated from? And there's only nine core motivations that we talk about in the book. I could argue there's 16 total, but I, I found that there's nine that I see again and again. I can, I can figure out how do you approach you know, your, your decisions, whether it's to maximize gains or minimize losses. And then I drop in one of these heuristics, one of these triggers, I should be able to, or I'm more likely anyways, to create marketing or an experience that elevates that emotional arousal to when you're in a trigger point. And remember, when you're in trigger point, you're more susceptible to influence because you're under the um, influence of a mind state. And so if you understand these moments in time and the mind state, I can now activate on somebody's goals. I can prime that motivation in my marketing. I can use copy to frame up whether it's, you know, to use my company to minimize risk or maximize gains and then ultimately drop in a, a trigger. So all that stuff comes together 
in the book, unfortunately, I went through four chapters of the book just now <laughs> for you, the audience. Yeah. So sorry about that. But each one of those are really critical, right? Because your visuals oftentimes should be evoking an emotion that comes from motivational psychology. So I like to think of all this stuff as the science behind emotional marketing. What drove me nuts when I would sit, uh, I was an economist, I'm sitting in meetings at PepsiCo, and we'd have advertising agencies come in and they pitch um, you know, great ad campaigns, amazing, brilliant, creative. And I would just ask simple questions like, why? Like, why? Why? Why do we have those two people as our spokesperson? Like, why? Like, well, this person has a reach and they have this many millions of followers. And I kept trying to understand, well, there's no, there's a psychological why that we should be using in our evaluation of creative. And that's lacking in a lot of companies. Um, and so what mind state marketing does and behavioral marketing and you know neuromarketing, it allows us to understand the science behind the why. And if I can identify the science behind the why, I can be more critical and more um, more kind of subjectively critical, I guess, or or, 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 or or just take maybe, maybe it's the other way. It's taking subjectivity out of the process and saying, let's just use science for what it's useful for, which is helping us at least navigate um, uh, creative versus right now, many companies just go like, well, it's just really emotional, but there's science behind emotions. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I'll, I'll get off, I'll get yeah, off my, yeah. my, my box. <laughs> Yeah, well, one of the things that occurred to me as as I was listening to you and also reading reading about that marketing model and in particular the the heuristics and the scarcity effect, which I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. Um, but the one one of the things that happened early on in this pandemic when we started having lockdowns, and this was common all around the world, was people rushed out and bought truckloads of toilet paper. So much so that toilet paper was hard to come by, and I thought that is weird. Why? Why would people, you know, that like the world is coming to an end? That was kind of the, the mind state, if you like. And yeah. why would toilet paper be the first thing on your list of things to stock up on? So, uh, can you explain that in terms of this whole mind state marketing model? I'm telling you. So I would I would equate it. I'll, I'll give you the long version of the story. I would equate it to. People have goals. Let's go to the goals and say, okay, yeah. what, what were those goals? And at some point, somebody's goals was like, I will not be without toilet paper. Somewhere up high, and there's an aspiration, right? Um, I think so. I, somewhere it started there. I think you're right. I think there was a run on toilet paper because of scarcity effect. I think that as you go to your necessities, when, when times are tough, you go to your necessities. And for some people, those are guns. And for some people, those are Doritos. And for a heck of a lot of people, it sounds like people felt more safety and comfort by knowing they would have access to toilet paper. And it was enough people that even I did, I started getting nervous too. I'm like, we can't find toilet paper. We would sit out by Walmart and wait for the big truck to come, literally. And then you come into your toilet paper. Not that we need, but like, what's so funny is it takes the rational part of the brain. You know, rationally, we don't need toilet paper. I have three kids. I have, I have three people in my whole house. We have And we have a bidet. So we don't even need toilet paper. Yeah. But we were there. Why? Because if you have it, I won't. And that's scary. So I, it's, there has to be some scarcity effect and certainly a lot of crazy emotions um, that, that went along with that as well. I can't, I can't rationalize it, but certainly it was an emotional thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of playing out in this GameStop thing right now, isn't it? Where, where you know, a few, pe a few people bought it, suddenly it gets some visibility and everybody's, oh, everybody else is buying this stuff up. It's moving up in price. I've got to 
get in on this action. And of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. While everyone's buying, the price goes up. And this is right across the board in the share market. And then at some point, the bubble bursts and everybody complains that, oh, gee, I lost yeah. money on that one. <laughs> yep, yep. It's going to happen. It's happened in our economy many, many times. Um, we had one down in Texas about four years ago where there was a rumor on Facebook that a um, offshore drill or, or oil rig, I guess is what they are, was no longer going to produce gas for Texas. You know how stupid of an idea that is? You're not going to produce gas for the state of Texas, but it hit on social media. And for about four days, we had shortages on gasoline because of a social media post that gained popularity so much so that I bought an, or I got an app that would tell me when gas was going to be shipped and delivered to a local gas station because I couldn't get gas because there was a run on gas where if you lived in Dallas, you would have to drive about an hour and a half to get gas. And everyone was saying the same thing. All the, the local news was saying, stop, there's no shortage on gas. Didn't matter. Nobody was rational. So it lasted for about four days. It's just because of a social media mm. post. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it, I did want to touch on the use of scarcity by marketers. And it's something that I really have a bit of a hate relationship with and I've got I've got a classic example at the moment and this has been going on for nearly eight months now so about eight months ago I signed up for this investment newsletter and the, it's a free investment newsletter but what how they do it they say here's here's the hot stocks right now but if you want all the details and all the background information you have to subscribe and and the subscription costs this much and oh by the way if you subscribe within the next by the end of the month we'll give you the second year for free so you get two years for the price of one and i was seriously considering that and i for some reason i missed the deadline and then i get another news uh, another newsletter a month later and there's the same offer just worded a little bit differently but basically the same offer so they, they've essentially trained me now to realize, and now eight months later, I'm still getting the same offer for, you know, get the second year for free, but it's only available until the end of this week or the end of this month. And I think they're playing that scarcity game, but clearly it's so disingenuous. And, and the result is that I haven't yet purchased that subscription and I may oh, never yeah. purchase that subscription because I know I can delay it. It's always going to be there for me. Mm -hmm. No, you know, and it's it. So I'll tell you, it, that, that's not unusual. It's overplayed a lot, mm -hmm. and even the largest manufacturers in the world have been doing it for decades. Imagine a coupon. So coupon for cereals, coupon for snacks. Um, the savviest shoppers realize that there will always be a coupon available for your snacks or your cereal. Always. There always is. Because what happens is they realize that when they do scarcity effect, or they basically, they'll say, well, here, they'll drop a coupon. And they'll say, this coupon is only available for this many days. They get a spike in sales. And then what happens is when those sales are coming down, some executive somewhere says, we need to drop another coupon because we got to keep our sales going up. What do they do? They do it in. So what they've done is they've conditioned people to always know that there's scarcity in the marketplace. So there's scarce, there's going to be a coupon. Therefore, no coupons work because all coupons are the same. I will always get my dollar off of my cereal. So it's played out for many, many decades. You're just savvy enough to realize that you're the savvy shopper. You figured it out. The vast majority of people never figure this out. You're and they just don't. And so, mm. and so, you know, unfortunately it's overused. And I think scarcity effect is one social proof is similar. 
this idea that if you tell people thousands of people have signed up for my newsletter, that's becoming so overused now too, that that doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. Um, to, to people, and we're starting to seeing little by little, I think scarcity effect and social proof as a trigger to drive somebody to you know make a quick decision is becoming less and less meaningful. Why? Because everybody uses it. So you, as a customer, or you as a um, you as a, a business owner, need to figure out one of the other ones. And there's a whole bunch of these out there. I mean, I have 21 in my book. There's others that have 121, but um, but it, it's it's universal, and it's it's be, they're being used too often. Why? Because these things are becoming more popular. We're having podcasts like this all the time talking about. And which is one we use scarcity effect. Why? Because everyone uses it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, now we're all about um, making marketing human again here, and um, that's based on the premise that you know the relationship with the customer I think is is most fundamental to having good long term business relationships and uh, helping their cus helping our customers get their desired results so looking at the goals is really important to us so the marketing isn't done when the sales finished because the person hasn't yet necessarily achieved their goal that's right so yeah how, how does that whole concept of focusing on that relationship first and keeping that connection that commitment to helping the customer achieve the goal how does that play into your whole model of the the mind state marketing mind state yeah. marketing well i think i had to as a small business when i was you know thinking about how so the book marketing and mind states is nice but that's not really a big part of my company the real big part of the company is you know helping small businesses uh, achieve more consistent growth um, that they can kind of rely on better marketers by using these things. So what I had to do early on is say, okay, so if, what do I want to stand as a small business? And as I said, last year changed my life with seeing so many small businesses, you know, leaving, um, they, they, they mortgaged their homes, they lost their business, they lost everything from no, no action that they did wrong. They just weren't equipped. So what I, this became my passion saying, I can make these small businesses more successful. I can make, I can have an impact on this. And I really believe that an entrepreneurial middle class is going to be the most important thing we can build as a society is building many, many more small businesses so that we can kind of navigate economic crises like this. So the book gets you only so far after the book, then what I want to do is build a company that allows you to maintain, like just exactly what you just said is maintain this, um, this new competency in your company. And so what I did was I created different programs. That's the classic, you can just get the learning program. You can get a program that will allow um, you to work through some of these activities using a video. And then the third program is our partnership program, which allows you to work with our company, not just identify mindset and start changing your marketing, but over the course of a year. So you get more proficient. So every month we meet, we'd look at your marketing, we look at it again, so we can finally build a competency. I, I think about, my business as a business that helps you drive competency uh, versus I'm not an agency. Like I don't do marketing creative. Um, I'm not even a research company anymore. I have a research company, but I don't even do that. I think my job with the mind state group is to build a competency and some people can get it from just the book. Other people need a little help and they do the videos. Hmm. Other people want me to kind of hold their hand for over the course of a, uh, of a year. And then technically I guess we could go farther. So ultimately I think it's giving your customer where depending on where they are in in their journey um the right product 
But then also, just like you would do, like like anyone would do, once they get the book, I follow up with them in about a month and said, hey, you bought the book. How is it going? And would you like to enter into the master class, which is the video-based course, which is going to be not just a regurgitation of the book, but we're going to do activities together. And I show you how I applied it to one brand. And then after you've attended the master class, a month later, you would say, you get an email from me. Hey, you learned about how I did it. But would you want to learn help or would you want help learning how to do it for your company? If you do, there's that partnership program. So I guess I give different levels of um, um, different levels for people in different places in their journey. But also every level gives you greater access to somebody who, who has more competence in that in that field to get them to a better place. And hopefully after a year, we should be saying goodbye. I hope I hope I built that competency into your company to where you don't need me anymore. Um, you you have enough through the videos and through your own experiences after doing this with a year for a year that you can teach others. You could teach your own agency, hopefully. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's fascinating. And, and you know, I, I like that you've mapped out a, a real customer journey there. And there's clearly an end goal, which I think is good for every business to say, yes, we want an ongoing relationship, but here's the end goal where, you know, we've given you everything you need and you're then able to do it yourself. So you don't need to keep paying us money just, just yeah. to have that relationship. And I think it was starts off the first part that my goal is not to become a millionaire. Though I mean, that'd be awesome. No doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to build a, a, an entrepreneurial middle class. And how do you do that? If you're, if you constantly go to, if, if you don't get this out to the masses, and so there's only there's only so many workshops you can do. There's only so many customers you can actually, uh, you know, deliver products and services to, at least in the field of coaching or whatever, like I do. So if that's the case, if my end goal, if my aspirational goal is to create an entrepreneurial middle class, I need to let you go off and do your thing. I have to. Um, now, don't get me wrong. That was just within the last couple of months I came to that conclusion. It was because of COVID. It just changed my life um, mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do as a business owner and things like that. So hopefully we'll continue to do that. But I think it started off with my aspirations, which was not to grow into a multi-million you know, dollar company. It was more or less build this entrepreneurial class, which means get people to use it and let them go off and do their thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so much gold in what you've just said there, though, because you you know you start off with a really clear vision of what you want to achieve at a pretty high level and then you built the pathway to achieve that recognize that in order for that to happen you can't be the bottleneck which is kind of the an outward reflection of how you should be running your business anyway you shouldn't be the bottleneck in your business and also if you've got a global vision for uh, helping your customers, you shouldn't be the bottleneck in that. So to get them to the point where, okay, we know this, we've, you've given me everything I need, I, I'm now capable of going and doing this myself. Oh, you're much now, more articulate might... than I am. <laughs> I should have recorded that, that was great. But yes, I like what you said. Yeah. Okay, it'll be recorded, we can transcribe it. <laughs> All right. Um, now i'm aware of the time here and we're going on but there was one thing that fascinated me and i, I wondered if you could explain this one a little bit more because I, I think it was a short article you wrote and you used the example of um, watch advertising and and you posted all these images and i must admit i didn't see it until until i read on you posted um, all these images and said Do you notice something common about these watches and my my thing was Oh, they're all analog watches, um, but I didn't notice. I didn't notice the actual um, point you were pointing out, which was they're all 
set to 10.09, the magic time. So talk to us about, you know, why is that? What did you observe there? What what did you find when you dug into that? Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a case study I use a lot to explain the power of science-based marketing. And here's the concept is that if you right now, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you go to any, don't do it yet. We want you to finish out the podcast. But yeah. after this podcast, you go to any browser, I don't care what browser you use, and you type in the word watches, and then you pull up images. What will happen is, and in fact, you have a favorite brand, use the brand, Swatch, Watch, Rolex, doesn't matter. But if you start looking at all these images and you just scroll through them, you will find something that's in common. And I'll ask my students all the time what they find in common. And eventually we get to the time and you will notice that 10.09.36, in fact, 10.09.36 tends to be um, a, a, a concept or a time that is universally used. It just, it comes up again and again. And to be like, why is that? So I always say, why is that? Why is 10.09.36 the time that regardless of, it could be decades old advertisements from decades ago, it's 10.09.36, 10.09.36. And you know, nobody really knows, but there's been a couple of articles. Um, I read one from the New York Times, and the concept is oblique orientation versus cardinal orientation. It's how the human um, eye works. So the human eye can pick up corners very easily, um, sharp objects very easily. So imagine if you are um, looking at a watch and it says 9 o'clock. You'd have kind of a very sharp right angle nine o'clock or even six o'clock. You know, you know if, if you have six o'clock on your watch, then you would see um, a straight line. Well, the human eye picks up that time very easily. That's called a cardinal orientation. There's another type of orientation called ordinal, um, um, oblique orientation, sorry, oblique orientation. And that's something that's curved in nature. Well, the human eye, it takes slight, it's slightly harder for the human eye to pick up a curve just slightly. Um, so you may be asking, what the hell does that have to do with selling more watches? Like, why does that matter? Well, if the human eye takes slightly more time, and I mean slightly more time, to pick up a curve like 1009, think about the watch hands on a watch, 1009, 36 is, is the common one that you see, then it just may get a few people to pause because I can't read the time. And if I can just get a few people to pause, I may get a few of those few people to actually consider the watch. And this played out over the course of decades in watch advertising. And so what I use that idea ultimately is like, if you're a watch manufacturer, great, use 10936. The bigger point is this, is that if you understood the biology of the eye, and if you could use that to your advantage, by just saying literally, hey, I'm going to, I know the biology of the eye, and I know that it's harder for the eye to pick up a curve. How can I use that to my advantage? So you'll look at my advertising, you know, I can get one out of an extra, you know, one extra person out of 100 to look at this advertisement. Why wouldn't I use that to my advantage? Why wouldn't I use biology? That's what that whole thing, uh, that whole case study is, is to explain the idea of science-based marketing and science-based design. Hmm, hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, and I I did that exercise that you suggested, and I thought, wow, <laughs> it's, never, it? okay. never really paid attention to that. Yeah. Um, what I haven't done yet is see what the digital digital watch advertisers do. <laughs> Oh, I know. Did you see? I think I had one. I've seen one where it has a digital watch is set to 10.09.36. Like, why would you do that as a digital watch? But, and I even have a picture now. I went to a Walmart by my mom's house. My mom lives in um, the mountains in Tennessee, um, very rural area. And I went to a Walmart and there was a display of clocks, of clocks. And they all said 10.09.10.10. 10, and I thought that was somebody somewhere, whoever manufactured the clocks in China or wherever, 
somebody had to do that. Somebody had to do that. Why? Like, why would anyone do that? So it's universal, even in a display. I, I took a picture. I use it for my students all the time to show them, even in a Walmart in rural Tennessee, the clocks were set at 10.09.36. Whole yeah, display. Yeah. It, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a little bit like the story of why why the standard gauges, and I don't know, I can't remember the exact measurement, but there's some really weird measurement that the standard railway gauge is, and it's it kind of comes back to the fact that, well, everybody's done it like that, so we do it like that. And the real reason is that it goes back to the days of the Roman chariots, which were uh, a width that allowed two horses to be put into the... I've heard that. Nobody's ever questioned it, right? But yeah, I've heard <laughs> that's that. Right. Heard that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's just the way it is. So, okay. Yeah. So why wouldn't you use that to your advantage? That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, this this has been absolutely fabulous, Will. Now, we don't want to go too deep into the book because we do want to get people to go and read it. <laughs> so, and, and also, I'm aware of the time. I want to be respectful of your time. So I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz which is our innovation round, and it's designed to help our audience who are primarily leaders and innovators in their field with some tips from your experience. So there's five questions. Hopefully, you'll give us some really insightful answers that in, inspire the listener to go and do something awesome as a result today. All right. Let's get to it. Yep. So what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I think that uh, the number one thing you could do is to realize that there are very few absolute truths anymore. Um, and here's what I mean by that. I have an economics book behind me that was written in uh, 1917. And it's next to a marketing book that was written in 1917 with a science book that was written in 1917. And in that, in those three books, they speak to their world as scientific evidence. Like it was, it was fact. And the fact of the matter is, we now know that science has changed dramatically. Marketing has changed dramatically. Economics has changed dramatically. And I use that a lot. I, I just look at it back here to remind myself that there are very few absolute truths in this world. And for you to be most innovative, you have to figure out for yourself that whatever it is that you've heard in the past that you believe is fundamentally true, chances are two generations from now, they will laugh at you for thinking that. And I think mm -hmm. about even with my own book, I think, what will my grandkids think about my book? And what I believe is really strong behavioral science, two generations from now, will they look at me and say, Grandpa Leach, great grandpa Leach, but he didn't know anything, did he? So just realizing that the world is always evolving and that's really, really critical for you to know, for you to be very, very innovative is realizing there are no absolute truths. So go create your latest absolute truth. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it, it's kind of comes back to, you know, really questioning, using that question why that we talked about early in the in the piece and and challenging things. Why is that why is that the case? And what if it wasn't? like that i love what that if, what if it wasn't i don't use that mm. enough what if it wasn't that's a great one because i don't think mm. about that way but that's that's brilliant right there is what if it wasn't the truth that's great mm. what would be that's your truth yeah all right now what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas you know i'll go back to what i did with the model and it took me a decade almost to, to build out that model what well, i took a very deliberate approach to i would read a book and then I would read a, or maybe an article. So I would do a ton of reading. And then I would take those two and literally try to figure out the bridge between two articles or two books or a book and an article. And, but I was very deliberate in doing that. I wasn't just like, what do I think? I was like, how do these things relate? What is the bridge? And what I found is that, especially in one 
genre. So I'm in the behavioral science field, right? So I was studying motivational psychology and regulatory fit theory and cultural anthropology. And by being deliberate and trying to figure out how do these things relate, I would find one of two things. One is we speak about the same topics using different words. And I think that that was how I was able to develop new ideas is find relationships because of it. They're saying something over here in culture and anthropology that they're saying over here in neuromarketing, and they're very similar topics. So I would find patterns where they connect. And then also I would find things where I would look at an article. This does nothing for me. This has nothing to do with, 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 with this other, um, um, with this with this other genre. And what that did for me was help me bring in different perspectives to create my version, uh, in this case, was a model. Um, and so I was being very deliberate. And you'll see in my, I have lots of books over here all over, all over my office where I will talk about how this relates to a specific book. And that was just because I forced relationships. I tried to force them. And if I couldn't find a relationship, and that was learning in and of itself. So for me, the best thing I've done is force myself to find connections between different books, different articles. And when I do that, I find that through collectively, that whole process allows me to become much more smarter in this topic. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, that's a really interesting way to, to read it's things. And, and yeah, <laughs> well, it's connecting the dots, which I think is, is a really important skill to have. And it comes back to your answer to question one, where you talked about things changing all the time. And here you're finding the commonalities between ideas that people publish in books or articles um, where they may be completely different ideas on the surface, but they're actually saying the same thing about a different area. So you, if you change the context, all of a sudden, oh, that applies. So so I love that because then then it, it develops the ability, in my mind, it develops the ability to say, okay, there's here's something that I can't connect a dot to something else, but if I change the context of this, here's how I could express it mm-hmm. in this I love context. Mm. I love it. Great. All right. Now, what's a favorite resource of yours you use, use most often? You talked about reading lots of books and articles. Yep. Um, I still use Google Scholar all the time. And if you don't know about Google Scholar, like anybody out there, when somebody poses a question to you, the first thing I do is go to Google Scholar and I just type in that question. And you will find that there are PhD students all over the world who are thinking about something much more in deep or in depth than you are. So I use Google Scholar. It's so old school, but I still bring up old academic articles and try to figure out what people. And of course, in every academic article, most of the time they have to do some sort of a of a um, lit review. So they has done a lot of the work for you. So Google Scholar, I still use to this day all the time. Mm, I love it. Yeah, I I haven't used it for some time. I'm going to go and visit it again. But yeah, you're right. Because um, going back to my days in publishing research, you you, you know, you've got to put down all the reference, all the all the information that you used in that or that you quote in that. And so typically an article will have a hundred references or more. That's right. I still mm. use it to this day. First thing I do. Great. All right. Now what's the best way to keep a client on track? Yeah, I, I go back to, um, we do this in actually in, in some of the programs is one is I try to set the compelling vision. Like if you want your client to be kept on track, it's not about timelines as much as it is like a compelling vision that everybody can um, agree upon. So I try to set a compelling vision first. And then what I found out actually last year was that even with that compelling vision, if you have a copywriter in a room, 
next to a salesperson in the room, next to a marketer in the room, next to somebody who's in product innovation in the room. Everyone has a compelling vision, but they have their interpretation of that compelling vision. And I didn't realize how that can actually make, a, everyone walks away from that meeting with what they believe is their assignment and their role. And then they come back together and we find out, oh my gosh, one of these people went in a direction that I never would have thought they would have gone into and it costs us time. So because of that, we do an alignment sheet. I know it sounds so goofy, but literally just set up a sheet of paper that we're all aligned. And we, we do it in my company through mind states, but making sure that we have something in writing that we're all nodding our heads to in agreement saying, oh, this is the motivation. This is the aspirational goal. This is uh, how we're going to execute on it. It's going to be through digital or whatever. But we have this alignment sheet that is kind of written in stone that we can always go back to. And so I always tell my clients, keep that alignment sheet in every meeting you go to and always look back, whether it's a piece of creative or an initiative and saying, how does that align with my alignment sheet? And even to this day, we find 10 to 20% of initiatives are, they, they'll come back to the group and they'll say, oh, it doesn't actually align with what we all agreed upon. So I use a literally a piece of paper that aligns us. So that's that's my that's my way of keeping the client on track as an alignment sheet. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I, we spoke with uh, Stefano Mastria Giacomo, who wrote a book called The Team Alignment Model. I think it's The Team Alignment Model. In fact, I've got the book behind me, High Impact Tools for Teams, it's called. And uh, he he has this alignment sheet that that is really good. It's really powerful, and it kind of says goes to the detail of laying out who who does what within the team, and it it has this process for then saying, well, what if what if X happens that wow. perhaps we don't expect, and so you you've developed. It's kind of like some scenario planning as well. Wow. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he sounds like he's doing a lot better than I am. That's kind of... <laughs> well, he he's written research papers on this whole thing, so you, yeah. you might find him in Google Scholar. I'll look him up at Google Scholar. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Now, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? I get this asked a lot from students or younger people in their career. Um, mm. I always say, find your one thing, and and I want to be clear here: the reason why. I am successful, at least in, in my world, is that I found two passions and I brought them together. One was human understanding. And I just, I fell into it. Like I said, I was an economist that I got put into a role and I was forced to get into this and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I loved marketing from a very young, um, a young age. So I brought those together because they are absolutely my passion. If you don't know that, you, you should after you know listening to me for the last hour. I always tell people, find your one thing. And if you read um, The Business of Expertise um, from David Baker, it's a couple of years old, but basically he talks about um, the idea of becoming a thought leader in the field. And I think he alludes to this in that for you to be a thought leader, you have to be original. And in today's world, I find it very difficult to be original if you only are focused on one thing. But if you can bring two of your passions together, you can actually become very original. So I don't care what your two things are. If it's, you know, sweaters for cats and great marketing, bring those two passions together. And I promise you, I promise you, you will be differentiated and you'll monetize that as well. So I'm always like, I always tell my students, find two passions, whatever those two passions are, go deep in them. As long as you still are passionate about them. And remember, I told you, you can find linkages. I promise you, you will find linkages. And where you find those linkages, where your two passions come together, that is your point of differentiation. And if you can monetize that, 
you won't work a day in your life. You will only, you'll be, you will be paid for doing something that you love. And so find two things. And if you can do that, you'll be differentiated and you'll be happy. That's, I firmly believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And combining two things is so powerful because, because that is clearly what differentiates us. So if we're all born individuals and, and we, go through life experiencing a whole lot of different things. And when you start to combine all those life experiences, then there isn't anybody else like me or like yeah. you. Hmm. That's right. All right. Now, this has been fabulous, Will. Now, where can people reach out and find out more about you, buy the book, find out about your programs, and maybe even get in touch and say thanks for what you've shared today? Well, thank you very much. Uh, so my main point of contact is mindstategroup.com. And that's where you can buy books and see our programs. We have lots of free resources. We have videos of me teaching this and LinkedIn uh, at William Leach. Um, you'll see author, Mind State Marketing, but I do a lot of work with LinkedIn. Um, and so some of my early publications go to LinkedIn. You know, I put, I post out there all the time. So either my website, mindstategroup.com or LinkedIn, those are the two places you can find me most. Great. And we'll have links in the show notes where people can click straight through as well. Oh, great. Ned do you have some parting advice for our listeners today? Yeah, I, I'm going to leave you with that whole differentiation thing. I, I think the reason why um, people are successful is that they found a way to marry their passions, whatever those passions are. They don't have to be business. They can be many different passions. But any advice, if you want newest of innovation, if you want to be differentiated, if you want to be known, it is going to come through your integration of multiple passions. And if you can do that, I think we're in a better, we're better off as a society and we're better, you're going to be better off as a business. So do that, do the hard work, but once you find it, you'll never work again. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. And great message to leave with. All right. Well, finally, Will, who else should I have on this podcast and why? I've been giving this thought here. Um, <laughs> I want you, and I'll have to let this guy know, there is a gentleman by the name of Stephen Jenko, PhD, G-E-N-C-O. He wrote the book Neuromarketing for Dummies. Can imagine writing the book? You, oh. you got lucky enough to write Neuromarketing for Dummies. But he also recently wrote a book called Intuitive Marketing, What Marketers Can Learn from Brain Science. And I go to this book all the time. This guy, he's, he's a you know, Stanford um, graduate. He's got tons of work in neuromarketing, but he has such a great book I use because it's almost like a source book that I use for, I mean, there's such a large academic richness in this book that I go to again and again. I haven't talked to him in, in, in a number of years, but um, Stephen, uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen Jenko, PhD, I think he is fabulous at really bringing science to marketing, even more so than my book. Actually, I know more so than my book because I use his book all the time. So go, yeah. go bring him on. I think he'd be great. Wonderful. Well, we'll get an introduction to Stephen from you and, and have a chat to him. I, yeah, I did discover that book just recently, in fact. And I've no put way. It, Nobody yeah. hears about this this book? Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I came, I came across it and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to bookmark that. So I'd, um, that'll be one of my next purchases and it's on my reading list. So yeah, that'll be I great. I think he is the one of the smartest people in science-based marketing that you've never heard of. He's just a kind of a quiet guy, but he writes amazing stuff. It's it's academically heady, but once you get to it, you're like, wow, this guy's really sharp. So that's great. I've never heard anybody ever reading this book, so good for you. <laughs> Hopefully you'll read it. Hopefully you'll read yeah, it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us, Will, today so generously. I've, I've really enjoyed this. I've had a lot of fun. I, we could go on talking ages about good. marketing and, 
and behavior. There's a lot of areas that we didn't touch on that I had some bullet points there. And of course, you know, there's a lot more in the book. So I certainly encourage people to go and read the book, uh, Marketing to Mind States and lots of great information there, lots of uh, fabulous ideas. So thanks for sharing some of your deeper insights into that with us today and all the best for the future. And let's keep in touch. We will. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed that engaging and really informative conversation with Will and took something away from his episode. Digging deeper into the psychology of our ideal customers and understanding their drivers of behavior was one of the key messages for me, something that we work on in our transformational marketing blueprint with our customers. I'd love to know what you took away from Will's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Will Leach. That is W-I-L-L-L-E-A-C-H. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Will Leach. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Will, as well as links to the MindState Group website, the TriggerPoint website, the Marketing to Mind States book and his social media pages as well as all the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. Now, I'd love it if you shared this episode with two other people, maybe even more than that, that this conversation might help. There's so much gold in every conversation I have with people on the Innova Buzz podcast and I think we need to take responsibility for sharing that gold with other people and helping other people get value from it. So go share it now, tag me in that share, and I'll reach out to you with a special thank you gift. Will suggested that we have a conversation with Stephen Jenko, author of Intuitive Marketing on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So Stephen, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the Innovabuzz podcast, courtesy of Will Leach. And tune in again to the next episodes of the Innovabuzz podcast. Now, the very next episode is a special one. It's episode 400. And on that, we'll have facilitator, keynote speaker, coach, and award-winning stage performer, Aidan Nepom. And Following that, we're going to be speaking with LinkedIn expert and author of LinkAbility, Lynn Eyre Johnston. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating. 